From our offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, and with me today, as usual, are Patrick Malloy of the Rocky Mountain Institute in Washington, D.C., and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum over in London. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Rob Delcor. Rob is Assistant Vice President of Advanced Technology Strategy at Ricardo PLC and is based out of Ricardo's San Diego offices. He's one of the leading experts on hydrogen mobility and transportation drive systems, amongst many other things, and we are happy that he made the time to speak with us today. Before we jump into the show today, we wanted to quickly note that if you enjoy the Everything About Hydrogen podcast, please do leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. We have a rapidly growing audience already, and we are delighted by that, but we believe the more the merrier here at Everything About Hydrogen, and those positive reviews really help us reach more listeners. Now that we've taken care of some of the formalities, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Rob Delcor of Ricardo PLC on today's show. And with that, let's get started. Guys, I read this morning that, uh, what is it, McKinsey came out with a new report about uh, the prospects of a U.S. green hydrogen uh, revolution. Have you guys had a uh, chance to take a gander at that just yet? I believe it was sponsored by Plug Power. I I haven't seen that one. I have seen that there's a big drive recently across all my channels for people to talk about America. We just did a um, okay a workshop. All right, we'll we'll take it bigger. It doesn't have to be that report. No, but I mean it's 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 an interesting one. I mean because we just had earlier in um, in September we had a a UK HFCA and Hydrogen Council webinar and. They were very keen, and Pierre Tiafron from the Hydrogen Council was very keen to talk about the U.S. and to say that you know that for the Hydrogen Councils were the last big missing piece of the puzzle because they see such an enormous opportunity there, and they think the U.S. could be an enormous leader in this, but they've just been lagging, and there's a real sort of frustration. So I guess those kinds of reports that you're alluding to are sort of part of I think what is going to be an increasing drum roll of momentum to try and force the U.S. to act more decisively on this. Yeah, well, and uh, to, you know, to be totally brutally honest, I just assume that you guys have always read everything that I've seen, like the headline of. So uh, I, I actually say, haven't read the full report. Andrew, Andrew should have read this before asking. <laughs> I should have, given <laughs> his <laughs> geographic proximity to it. You know, like that's that's just my geographic yeah. proximity, yeah. Patrick. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm I'm on vacation. I, I I'm taking it easy. You're yeah. you're meant to bear some of the burden here. Six, um, six blocks for me, Patrick. What do you think the role of the United States is going to be in the uh, well, in the green hydrogen revolution? Look, I think I think we mentioned it in the the last episode or or one of the last episodes around the next era efforts around generating hydrogen for co burning in in gas turbines. There's another one of those announced uh, with Entergy essentially doing something similar so yeah like there's been a there's been a definite uptick add into that um a lot more emphasis around highway haulage right trucks so classic trucks um a lot more talk around that i think toyota have have uh, had a recent announcement on that front as well you know there's momentum i think i think that's pretty safe to say and and now it's a case of okay so the rubber has to has to hit the road and we've got to see deployment and and well Actually, these are the kind of announcements you want to see when you when you start talking about deployment, right? So, yeah, look, uh, you know, U.S. approximately a 10 million metric ton market per annum, largely refineries, largely um, like fertilizer production. So, moving into other spaces is a really good sign. It is the stuff that that we and many others talk about as being the the value of hydrogen in in this space. It's it's a dynamic option. Um, and yeah, it's it's encouraging, and yeah, I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll have many many more reports released in the in the near future. Well, I mean, I, kind of on that, but it's not explicitly the report. Something that did catch my eye that I thought was interesting, and you know, as as an, as as the American on the show, Andrew, I wanted your take on this one. Uh, I recently saw that Next Era Energy's market cap overtook Exxon Mobil recently, and that was a big. Big announcement, given that Exxon, you know, has always been this giant of the energy industry, um, you know, and huge, hugely profitable business, you know, great dividends, great margin. And then to be overtaken by a company that's, you know, best known for its renewable business, I believe is the largest renewable IPP in North America, if not globally, actually, now at this stage. Um, I think it's a huge story. And, you know, they've just started looking at hydrogen as well. 
in some of their projects. So potentially that's also a line for them. But I think I just get your view on, on how that has landed in America, because if you ever wanted to explain the energy transition, that has got to be a pretty powerful way to show it. Well, let's take that piece by piece. Um, so Patrick and I had uh, had a, a discussion about NextEra this past Sunday over a couple of beers. Uh, as you might imagine, it wasn't horribly in depth, but um, I would say, you know, headline head, the headline news here, I think, at least from the average American standpoint, is to see Next Era Energy overtake the market cap of of ExxonMobil, right? Which I think ExxonMobil, it's fair to say, in the American mind, is synonymous with the largest company in the world all the time, right? It's always that's that's the standard. Uh, interestingly, to your point about Next Era. I don't know that this story has really landed on the uh, on the on the computer screens of the average American. Um, I'm not sure how many Americans actually even know Nextera's name. But that being said, Nextera now owns uh, Florida Power and Light, right? Like one of the largest utilities in the United States by far. Um, so, I mean, their name will certainly become household name now. Uh, I think it's also, yeah, I mean, to to the third part of that question, you know, the fact that NextEra is also synonymous with renewable energy, um, I would say that that's a, a great indicator uh, that things are moving in the right direction. But uh, to say that it's a indicator that it's really reached, like, the greater American consciousness as, like, oh, it's happening, NextEra bought FPL, and they're, they've overtaken ExxonMobil, uh, and there are renewables, you know, renewable-centered uh, uh, utility company. I don't know we've gotten that far yet, but it's close. It's the right direction, right? I mean, the United States, as I think even a lot of these reports we were discussing, the United States, and we've discussed on the show, is way behind uh, Europe and other, other regions, right? So this is uh, it's a positive step. What do you think, Patrick? Is it a big deal? Of course it's a big deal. It's a huge deal, but... You the know, biggest think, deal, the most I, massive deal. Oh, I, well, on, uh, well, you know, I, I'll reserve that for Protium's next round of funding, Chris. What can I say, right? Um, no, look, this is a monstrous deal. But, but in the same breath, like I think Andrew's right in that in the the mind of most people, you know, going about their day to day lives today, they're not even remotely aware that that's what's happened. And I think I think there's a lot of truth in that, you know we're looking at a transitional point within the various energy systems that we're part of. So yeah, that's, 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 that's a big indicator, but also, you know, I, I bang on about this regularly. So I'm going to bang on about it again. We're finally at the point where people are looking at O and G majors and their risk profile and assessing the actual exposures they have properly, both in terms of their future market risk, both in terms of their kind of asset life and the relative volatility of pricing, et cetera. You go through it. Finally, we're at the point where investors are looking at this and not seeing, oh, 24%. Sure, that's just the industry norm, right? It's, it's now about the fact that like, how long are they actually going to be able to produce? What are they going to be able to produce? What exposures do they have? What markets are changing? What does that mean for their business? And the answer is ExxonMobil are now not as valuable as next era. That's what that means. Welcome, Rob. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, you know, we've obviously been trying to do this for a little while, so uh, really, really appreciate you making the time, and uh, we're excited to have the conversation. Oh, likewise. All right. So, Rob, could you tell us and our listeners a little bit about Ricardo PLC and, uh, and your position and work that you do at the firm? Yeah, for sure, Andrew. So, uh, first of all, again, uh, Andrew, Chris, Patrick, thank you very much for, uh, for having me on the podcast. A pleasure to be here. Uh, just a, a little bit about myself. Uh, originally, I come from uh, the Great White North, from Toronto, Canada, and I've been living and breathing hydrogen for 20 years now. Uh, I started out with, with Hydrogenics and uh, you know, starting their testing their stack technology uh, co-founded their fuel cell power system uh, group in the early days and putting fuel cells in all kinds of vehicle applications in the uh, John Deere Gator into uh, in trucks and, and vehicles and that sort of thing. Uh, then I recently, then I moved to, uh, to San Diego in uh, 2007. Uh, and then, of course, uh, rejoined uh, Hydrogenics in, in 2012 and then recently uh, joined uh, uh, Ricardo here. So you know, I have to say kind of the two like, the key highlights of, of my career, the high points, uh, Number one would be delivering the eight fuel cell buses for transport for London. Those are the buses that were built for the 2012 uh, Summer Games. 
of course, and working with a lot of great people there. Uh, TFL, uh, guys like uh, Mike Winter, uh, Mike Weston, uh, Wright Bus, uh, you know, Siemens, Ballard. Uh, so great team. Uh, love the travel to the UK. Love the fish and chips. Uh, the trips to Northern Ireland. Those are my ISE days and, and great times and a great uh, program here, of course. Uh, and it, I would have to say the second uh, you know, highlight uh, of my career as well has been the development and working on the architecture of the Celerity fuel cell power system for, uh, for hydrogenics. And, and that was quite a ride, of course, working with Siemens to uh, develop the right voltage and current to make it work with their Siemens system and heavy duty applications. Uh, then, of course, uh, working with uh, talking to government, uh, working with the OEMs, uh, planning all the marketing debut, uh, writing proposals, all doing this within a two year time frame. Uh, and of course, uh, kudos to to uh, my wife at Caroline. Uh, she was supporting me with her superb proposal writing skills and marketing genius as well. So, so between that, we were able to bring in 20 million of projects uh, with a celerity uh, with the DOE, CEC, uh, and CARB uh, as well too. So all in all, I can't believe it's uh, 20 years uh, under my, my belt there of uh, fuel cell system integration, product development, uh, business development as well too. And, and I have to say, it's been great to witness the growth of the hydrogen industry. It's really phenomenal uh, what's, what's been happening here. So now I'm, uh, I'm AVP of, uh, for technology strategy uh, with Ricardo for hydrogen and, uh, and fuel cells. So to, to your, your question, Andrew, about uh, uh, the role of, um, of Ricardo and what I do at the firm. So, so Ricardo is a, is a vehicle engineering company. We're actually a global engineering and technical uh, consultancy, 100 years uh, in, in propulsion. Uh, we're 3,000 strong, headquartered in the UK with offices all over the world. And uh, we work uh, with, with reputable uh, partners, OEMs, you know, names like uh, McLaren, uh, Harley-Davidson, I mean, all the OEMs that you would expect uh, in, uh, in the space. And uh, over the years, Ricardo has branched out into other areas as well, too. So renewable energy, for example, uh, rail, but largely been a, uh, you know, the technical and engineering consultancy. So I'm in charge of fuel cell strategy in the U.S. And also I work very closely with our UK team, uh, especially with all of the hydrogen initiatives in the uh, in UK and the uh, rest of Europe. So speaking of the UK, um, you know, mainline testing for fuel cell trains began uh, recently. Ricardo's a part of the partnership in that work. Um, perhaps you can, can talk to us a little bit, the, the Hydroflex rail program in the UK and, and on what precisely you guys are taking on. Yeah, no, thank you, Patrick. So, uh, so you know, uh, Ricardo has many uh, capabilities in, uh, in aspects of rail and we're actually pursuing a lot of uh, hydrogen uh, rail opportunities in the UK. So Hydroflex is actually the UK's first hydrogen train. This is a project that was developed by Porterbrook, the, the rolling stock owner, uh, in partnership with the University of Birmingham, uh, the Center of Railway Research and, and Education. And this project is also you know, recognizing that hydrogen offers significant potential to help de uh, decarbonize the railway network and also to help the UK to, uh, to reach their goal of uh, removing diesel-only trains by, by 2040. So it's a that's a major goal here. And of course, uh, Ricardo's role here was to support the safety and certification side of the, uh, of the program. So uh, in terms of the, the project itself, uh, uh, Porterbook provided the electric uh, rail platform uh, for conversion. The University of Birmingham uh, did the uh, integration of a, a Ballard fuel cell with around 20 kilograms of hydrogen storage and also energy storage. And the testing that we, uh, that we heard about on September 29th, uh, recently, where the train was brought up to 50 miles per hour for uh, those first initial tests, uh, made also possible in part with the Ricardo support on the certification and uh, the testing, the safety side of the program, so that our, our certification team in the UK led the review, the documentation, and providing all of the necessary uh, documents for getting those approvals and, uh, and supporting the, uh, the program. Uh, sorry, Rob, I have to sort of go back a second. Um, if Ms. Delcourt can write a sponsorship application for grants worth $20 million, I clearly need to have her email as a follow-up for this afterwards because that was a pretty amazing opener about your background and story. And I just thought, you know, something I wanted to emphasize maybe a little bit before I jumped in with our list of questions is actually just, you know, um, you have had this amazing track record in the sector. And obviously my next question is going to be about TFL, which you mentioned was one of your two big sort of career highlights. Um, but maybe just before I do that, given that you've been working in the industry for such a long period of time, you've been engaged so intimately with a number of these companies, um, are you surprised now how quickly things have moved or do you sort of, have you been sort of having this growing feeling for a while that this was coming? I mean, you know, I, I think that's a question I often find for people who've been in the industry a while, 
I, you know, there must have been a sense of always sitting there going, "It's coming, it's coming, it's coming." But you know, so yeah, you know, so when it, so now that it is, is there sort of a sense of, well, it was always going to happen, or is it kind of almost a little bit like, well, it's great, but sort of why now is it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Chris. And I'm sure you've heard from others that uh, you know it's uh, it's you know you kind of hear this new thing called hydrogen, you know, being talked about, right? So uh, it's great to see uh, elements of the pool now, right? So if I look back and, and I look at the history, uh, you know, I really believe that we're in the next real sort of 10 years that they're, they're going to happen here in the industry. Uh, if you look at the 2000 to 2010 timeframe, uh, that, that era was really all about getting the technology and making it work and getting it out there. Uh, you know, the demonstrations also then fall within that, that period as well, too. So there's a lot of been, you know, it was a lot of pushing, a lot of selling, a lot of development. Uh, but really now you start to see what's really needed is that committed investment that's going to help drive it forward. So uh, having having been part of that journey, it's 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 nice to see that's just happening now. That's why I mentioned it's, it's exciting to see the developments here. Uh, you know, can I say it's about time? <laughs> well, uh, it, it's been it's been quite the marathon, I'll have to say. Right. This has certainly not been a sprint, but uh, uh, I, I think the the potential here, it's exciting. The timing is, is just right. And uh, and really happy to see it come to this point uh, right now. And I'm looking forward to. Uh, even the next 10 years and further advancements in, in the work that we're going to do here. Great. Well, so, I mean, you know, obviously one of the things that did happen in that last wave was the TFL buses. And, you know, I think the TFL buses are actually in many cases a fantastic, you know, a quite internationally known reference point because they, they've operated for such a long period of time. And I guess in some ways the most remarkable thing about them is how non-remarkable they are. They're like any bus. They operate normally. They do a great job. They don't break down and no one really notices that they are just a bus, but they're a fuel cell bus. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your involvement with that. Um, you know, how, talk us through the kind of project. Um, you know, did everyone think you guys were insane and, you know, uh, sort of, did it work out the way you'd planned? So certainly uh, Transport for London, these were eight fuel cell buses that were uh, built for the 2012 uh, summer games. And uh, so these were the ISE days. Uh, ISC was the prime contractor on that uh, the project. So I was the lead uh, technical program manager. Uh, I had a small team of, of four people. I was the fourth. And at times, uh, that team would expand as needed, like during design reviews and that sort of a thing. Uh, but being responsible for the design, build, test, delivery, support uh, was something that, uh, from a clean sheet, uh, was, was the uh, responsibility for, for those buses going forward. So I think, uh, you know, one of the key things was, was of course, the performance of the buses. And I, I like your mention of uh, how sort of um, unspectacular in terms of their, their just they blended right in. Uh, but one of the things that the fuel efficiency of the buses was actually higher uh, than anticipated. Uh, and I think that caused uh, some, some challenge in the fuel contract. There was, I think TFL thought that the buses would consume more hydrogen uh, than, than they, they did. And uh, I think there was a minimum requirement a consumption requirement. So there was probably some renegotiation on the fuel contract there as well. Uh, but these these buses were quite advanced and uh, also very efficient in design. They used a uh, ultra capacitor energy storage system for uh, as part of the hybrid architecture. Uh, so this is roughly a half a kilowatt hour of, uh, of energy on board for launch assist and also recuperation from regenerative braking. Uh, uh, Ballard HD6 uh, fuel cell was 75 you know, kilowatt. And, uh, and of course designed really for, for weight in mind. So it's a lightweight system. Uh, a lot of emphasis on reducing components count, uh, of course, uh, to make the buses run efficiently. And reliability was was one of the key things. I, I remember the kickoff meetings uh, that I had with uh, with London, where we're talking about how uptime was an important requirement. These buses were, and they did operate on the RV1 route uh, down through central London, so highly visible. And, you know, I was told, uh, you know, Rob, we can't have any pictures of these buses being towed across the London Bridge, right? So, so these were, you know, reliability was absolutely key. So everything about those buses was designed for serviceability and quick uptime. So to give you an example, if you look at the fuel cell system layout, the stack is actually designed to be removed within two hours. If you have all of the correct equipment, uh, inverters could be pulled and swapped out in 10 minutes. Uh, it had to be quick, accessible, and of course, making sure that the supply chain was also readily available to depot to make sure that the buses were, uh, were serviceable that way. So a very modular architecture, layout very clean, uh, accessible, all the piping runs to make it easy for access and support was part of the design uh, and also the efficiency and the simplicity that contributed to the, the uptime uh, as well. And then some other innovations uh, you know, on those buses that contributed to the uptime, there, there was uh, something called a bootstrap uh, strategy for starting up. So uh, being the, the first ultra capacitor hybrid bus platform, one of the challenges with UCAPs is when you key the, uh, the bus off, 
uh, and the bus sits for a period of time, the ultra capacitors will actually bleed down to zero voltage. And you need a certain amount of voltage to actually start the fuel cell system up. So there was a, a few approaches that, uh, that we looked at as a team. Uh, ultimately came up with what we call the bootstrap strategy, where essentially two motorcycle batteries are all that's being used to start the fuel cell bus. And when you key on, these two batteries essentially charge the ultra capacitors to an intermediate voltage level. And then there's a second stage using the ultra caps that the, the logic and also the Siemens drive to bring the voltage up for the fuel cell to get to a minimum uh, threshold of 150 volts. That would start the compressor, start the airflow, open up the hydrogen solenoids, get open circuit voltage, and you start going forward. So uh, so this whole bootstrap process took about, it was about 57 seconds for that first stage, two minutes in total, which from a timing, timing point of view is fine because all the other controllers would be booting up. Uh, but it was a very lightweight, very lean, just using a few contactors, resistors, software, uh, you know, to get the buses up and running. And uh, even if the batteries were flat, uh, it would just take a little bit longer for the buses to, uh, to start. So it was innovations like, like this and looking for opportunities to really simplify uh, although it sounds like there's there's quite a few steps, but using uh, you know innovative approaches to ensure that the buses could be uh, started, run, and uh, done in a reliable way uh, to to help ensure that that uptime. So uh, that the system worked uh, very well. And there's others innovations, but but I'll I'll, I'll pause there uh, on that innovation piece. But of course, the the other thing as well too is that you know the these buses were expected to uh, and from the very beginning. Uh, it was clear these buses were going to run in a high duty cycle, uh, high environs, uh, running 18 to 20 hours a day, carrying passengers in full revenue service. And uh, of course, as I mentioned, a highly visible environment. Uh, the buses would return to the depot and uh, there'd be a very narrow window for the buses to be cleaned and fueled, uh, usually from 1 to 6 a.m. They would kind of do the cleaning, the fueling, and then send the buses back out uh, the next day. So knowing that this was the duty cycle, noting that this was the mode of operation of the buses were all important factors in making sure that the uh, the buses could run for, originally it was intended for five years. And uh, the buses ran very, very well uh, to the point where Transport for London extended the uh, the operation of the buses and they, they ran 10 years, the lead bus, uh, accumulating more than uh, you know 30,000 hours on, on the fuel cell system uh, and, um, you know, and carrying carrying passengers. So it's all about, uh, you know, efficiency, you know, good design. Uh, the control strategy was optimized for lifetime efficiency and performance as well, too. And um, uh, really, I think, had an impact. So highly visible. Uh, and I really think that program helped move the needle forward in terms of the, uh, the technology. And kind of running with that, Rob, uh, what are the advantages that uh, hydrogen fuel cell drive systems offer over competing zero emission vehicle drive systems? I mean, Quite obviously, we're talking here about batteries, <laughs> battery electric systems, uh, but p- particularly in the medium and heavy duty vehicle seg- segment, right? I mean, uh, and then the follow on question to that, uh, if you wish to go down that direction as well, is, you know, do these do those advantages that the fuel cell systems have uh, in the medium and heavy duty segment, do they carry over to the you know passenger vehicle and, uh, you know, light like commercial vehicle sector. Right, great, Andrew. Yeah, no, thanks for, for that too. And, and uh, yeah, I thought that we're, we're not talking about, say, nuclear-powered buses or, or anything like this, of course, battery or, <laughs> or, or hydrogen, you know, fuel cells. So, you know, looking at and, and, and trying to, you know, say this a little bit differently than, than everyone else, of course, but hydrogen fuel cell drive systems, uh, you know, they give, they give about 99% of, you know, the same operating characteristics as uh, conventional vehicles. And, of course, you have the fast fueling and, you know, under 15 minutes, 10 minutes fill, but you can fill a, a truck or a bus and go extremely long range. And, uh, and of course, it's, you know, it's quiet. You have the benefit of the uh, uh, quiet operation, the high torque characteristics. And particularly with fuel cell, you've got the, the advantage of not only the acceleration, which comes with electric drive, but also uh, sustained uh, grade performance. So you can actually pull uh, passengers or load over sustained grades for a longer period of time. Uh, and then of course, you know, with the fuel cell and the hydrogen, you have the options or the, the flexibility of being able to operate in all kinds of environments in terms of temperature, extreme hot, extreme cold, and uh, even using some of that heat to provide uh, other benefits like such passenger comfort, for example. So, you know, with that as well, too, I mean, you can, you can easily scale up the power on a, uh, a fuel cell system by adding more and more stack power if you need it. Uh, you know, without adding the excess weight, uh, the solution for battery, of course, is to add additional battery and you, you pay a penalty in, in the terms of the, the weight of the battery, of course. Um, 
So, you know, because there's such close operating characteristics to close to conventional, the other key thing is that the operator really doesn't have to change their operating schedule uh, to accommodate or to, to use, utilize a hydrogen uh, fleet as well, too. And if you look at other things as well as like, uh, so for example, just even if you look at other storage mediums like liquid hydrogen uh, being a path, especially for, for trucks in the future, uh, you get the benefits of packing more hydrogen energy on board, more volume. And of course, that helps with the uh, demand side of hydrogen as well, too, that if you can carry more hydrogen, go a lot further uh, with liquid hydrogen on board, you get those benefits of weights and, and savings. And of course, that helps drive cost and and especially with advancements in electrolysis for renewable hydrogen, uh, it, it all it all comes together. So, so that's certainly one of the, the key benefits there. I think in terms of its its applications, uh, it, it's not just you know say class eight or or, or or truck. I mean, it applies to bus, truck, uh, rail, uh, marine, uh, aviation as well too. There's a lot of interest in in aviation, and, and that's that's also exciting because that can help drive some of the innovations and in technology in terms of. Uh, liquid fuel storage and also the uh, power densities of a fuel cell stack. So there's really no limit to it. And and if there's anything, if you look at the hydrogen, you know, infrastructure benefits that come with it as well too. I mean, one thing that you can do with hydrogen that you can't necessarily do, say with uh, with diesel, uh, is the ability to actually generate your fuel on site. So if you're uh, if you're an operator, a fleet operator that has the the property of the real estate, uh, you can co-locate a an electrolysis based. Uh, fueling station that can uh, that can supply your fleet and it helps ensure uptime and availability of fuel. But that uh, that can also your site can also be configured to uh, to take deliveries of hydrogen that's being uh, delivered from say a remote location or being generated from perhaps a uh, remote uh, wind or solar farm uh, to get that security supply. So it all becomes part of the the infrastructure. Uh, so you know the, the lighter, the more payload, fast fueling, long range, no no range restriction. Uh, these are all, all key things. But something else to point out, too, is that uh, if you think in terms of footprint, uh, having, you know, a hydrogen you know, fleet uh, in general, there's there's less footprint involved because you don't need to park so many vehicles uh, for the fueling. So if you're running, say, you know, a battery uh, fleet and you have to account for the time it takes to recharge, you'd be looking at parking a lot of these vehicles in that area to to uh, to get the charge going. Uh, with uh, with hydrogen uh, vehicle, you're, you're basically looking at, you're minimizing the footprint, you're basically looking at a line, you're, you're lining up, right? So you bring in the, the vehicles, you fuel, uh, so it's quite high fueling velocity, you can get the vehicles going. So it's it's very much like the traditional fueling methods, uh, and in that way, the, the footprint is a lot uh, lot smaller. So for, for all these benefits, of course, it, you know, it carries into those other applications as, as well. So yeah, Rob, you know, based in California these days, I suppose the big one of the big questions that's beginning to emerge, particularly in, in in North America, but but in the U.S. right now, is around what role will hydrogen-powered vehicles play, um, and in particular in California, given this ambitious target, what role will will they have in in California um, in the next little while? Yeah, it's 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 interesting that you bring this up, uh, Patrick, in that uh, you know I mean hydrogen-powered vehicles will play a critical role as well as the renewable hydrogen. You know, and, I, and I think, in my opinion, coming from electrolysis of uh, that fuel. But even before the ban, uh, you know, CARB in June of this year uh, came up with the with the advanced clean truck regulation, and that's the uh, it's the, really the first rule in the world requiring truck manufacturers to start selling zero emission trucks beginning in 2024. Uh, and by 2045, all trucks uh, being sold in California would be would be zero emission. So kind of linking that back to the government uh, ban, you know, I see both of these working hand in hand. Uh, you know, of course, because the advanced advanced clean truck rule uh, applies to the truck, and then the ICE ban kind of broadens the scope out uh, a little bit. So, you know, recently I held a webinar uh, together uh, with with CARB and the California Hydrogen Business Council to talk about how OEMs can meet the advanced clean truck regulation on on time and the role of uh, hydrogen and fuel cells. So, it's a very informative, uh, you know, webinar. And if anyone is interested to know more about it. Uh, you can, you know, please reach out, uh, you know, to Ricardo. You can reach out to uh, Caroline.Delcor at uh, Ricardo.com, and she can provide the the link and that information. I, I recommend that. Uh, but in that webinar, I, I make it very clear, and I'll, I'll say it here again, that uh, using some operating characteristics and uh, looking at goods movement trucks, uh, you know, trucks can easily go 400 miles a day. It's it's a continuous operation on a highway, and of course, you're looking at higher average speeds and and uh, 
uh, in, in doing that, just today's battery technology just really can't do the, the job, especially if you're looking at crossing state lines and, and really where a lot of businesses in California are are doing that. So really, if you want zero emission, you know, to, to do that and get the long range, you know, hydrogen is really only only the solution. And as I mentioned earlier, if you're going to attempt that with battery, you're going to be looking at a solution that either relies on a leap of a battery technology or working on ways of actually uh, adding, you know, batteries to that. So, you know, fuel cell is really integral to that, that market. And I don't see that just in the U.S. I see that around the world, too, uh, where, you know, fuel cell is going to, uh, you know, meet the needs of the industry, especially in terms of range and, and uh, all the benefits that we had talked about, uh, you know, before. So, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that battery is, 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 is not good. I mean, if you have a duty cycle that requires, uh, you know, uh, shorter range and uh, you can live with uh, the charge times that are required, uh, and if the truck is, is required, you know, utilization is low, so it sits as more of a, of a standard asset during the day. That's that's one place where it can work uh, okay. But uh, but certainly if you need that high utilization duty cycle profile, the, uh, the hydrogen is, is the way to go. And of course, if you're looking at uh, other sectors like rail, uh, a ship, uh, you know, these are applications like marine, for example, where you're looking at sustained power for a, for a longer period of time, not a lot of opportunity for regeneration. And, uh, you know, the, the hydrogen is going to play a, a key role there. So even, even if the battery technology actually improves, it kind of goes back to, you know, a supply chain issue. And I think one of the things that are exciting about, uh, about hydrogen is that it really allows countries to be, you know, energy independent. No one's monopolized it yet. Uh, you know, it can allow states, countries, cities to even become net exporters of, of hydrogen fuel as well, too. So this is a very uh, exciting, uh, you know, potential here. So, and I think these kinds of rules and, and bans are, are, are critical uh, for infrastructure providers. Uh, it helps provide the, the offtake, uh, you know, for, for the hydrogen so that uh, infrastructure providers and fuel providers have that confidence to, uh, you know, to build that infrastructure, you know, out and, uh, and support those, those fleets. So and I think also by doing this has helped drive other investments that leverage some of the investments that have already been made, especially say in California with light duty stations, uh, having infrastructure built out that could support uh, heavy duty fleets can also generate fuel that can serve and supply uh, the light duty station infrastructure that's going out as well too. So I think, um, you know, I think all these things are, are key and, and uh, it certainly allows the OEMs to ramp up their efforts to develop the, uh, the technology. So, um, Robert, one more transport question and then we'll stop, I promise. But um, I'm going to shamelessly ask a question uh, to you, given your expertise, that um, is driving me nuts because it comes up again and again and again. Um, I am sure you have seen the famous or should I say infamous LinkedIn image where they have a diesel car, a battery electric car and a fuel cell car on the top. And they start with 100 units of energy in all three. And then they show the efficiency losses drop the way down. And then someone very smugly puts a comment at the end saying, this is why batteries are better. And of course, we all know they're not actually talking about the full vehicle efficiency, right? They're not actually reflecting weight and carrying capacity. So at Ricardo or just in you know, some of the roles that you've had before, if you were to actually make that chart a real chart, so you're actually trying to say, okay, my current truck carries 29 tons of goods on a per kilowatt hour basis, you know, how does battery versus diesel versus fuel cell look together? Is that gap still that dramatic? Um, and how close is fuel cell on a full vehicle efficiency versus battery? I know we can talk about use cases and refueling time and all of that's great, but for the real efficiency nuts out there who just can't get their heads around it, you know, I would love to get your perspective on how far off actually is that efficiency piece when you really do that full vehicle analysis. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great question, Chris. So. Uh, so in terms of, you know, efficiency, uh, you, you know, so, uh, you know, batteries, uh, they, there's, there's challenges there with efficiency as well, too. I mean, uh, you know, batteries have also been known to suffer from, you know, self-discharge over a period of time as well. Uh, so this is something that can take a hit. But focusing on, on the fuel cell side of things, uh, you know, let's just talk about even the generation of fuel. So one of the things that have happened with electrolyzers uh, year over year is that the efficiency of the electrolyzer stack technology has been improving. Uh, and of course, you know, coming from a, a company like Hydrogenics, which has been developing the core uh, stack technology, you see the benefits year over year, the improvements of this as well, too. So it's, it's getting better and better. Uh, and of course, when you're looking at coupling, uh, you know, say large scale PEM electrolysis, for example, with renewables, 
Uh, and especially when you have surplus generation of renewable energy uh, in times when there's really not enough demand, you can really just take all that energy and make all the hydrogen stored and, and bank it. So if you also look at the efficiencies of storage, uh, that has to be part of the equation as well too. Because hydrogen, you can bank it, you can store it. It's a, it's a gas, as long as your, your vessel does not uh, leak, uh, you can store it indefinitely, right? So you can make it in the summer and you can use it whenever, all right? For years even, if that's the, if that's the case. So if you're factoring also you know, the efficiency of storage, I mean, this is a very strong uh, consideration as well that you can actually uh, you know, take the hydrogen, bank it, uh, use it for transportation, and because it's so flexible, uh, you can actually move it and use it elsewhere, okay? So this is you know, kind of part of the holistic view as well too. And of course, you know, fuel cells, uh, when, you're, when you're converting uh, uh, the, uh, the hydrogen into electricity, there's some efficiency losses, but overall, I mean, the cycle is still much better than, than compared to combustion. If you're if you're looking at that as well too, and uh, so you really have to weigh things out apples you know to apples. I think the exciting prospect for for hydrogen is the fact that you can get value not only as a transportation fuel, but also in its role as a decarbonization mechanism. So uh, we can generate uh, hydrogen for energy storage. So we can bank the fuel, we can store it. An electrolyzer can also be used as a, uh, a shock absorber. Uh, on the grid, for example. So it's a very fast acting device. Uh, and when you're connected to the grid, which is where you know, the efficiency calculation is also taking place here, uh, the electrolyzer can play a role in actually leveling out uh, the, you know, the transients and frequencies uh, of the grid to balance things out. So especially in places where you have uh, very high renewable penetration on the grid, uh, a lot of nodal congestion, the electrolyzer can actually uh, you know, operate as a with millisecond response as that resource in, in the fine tune. So when you're kind of looking at the holistic view, and again, we're, you know, the beauty of, of hydrogen is the whole ecosystem uh, that we look at here from a, from a holistic, you know, fueling and vehicle side of things, uh, you count all these, these things, there's, there's clearly some, some benefits uh, there as well. Yeah, and Rob, I know uh, uh, Chris promised that we would move off of transportation. So I think we're actually going to maybe blend a couple of questions here, but there's a, from your standpoint in, you know, just the, the headline answers, Outside of the transportation sector, where else do you see clean hydrogen technologies having the greatest impact going forward? And then uh, I think we're going to blend two questions here together, which may or may not necessarily follow right on one after the other. But uh, also, you know, we've seen these large announcements from utilities, uh, similar to NextEra and others like that, around hydrogen blending and their gas turbines and various other applications outside of transportation that I guess is the connecting theme here to that end. You know, one thing that we hear all the time is price, price, price is the biggest challenge here in the hydrogen sector. Do you think that these announcements coming from other sectors like utilities about hydrogen applications and hydrogen utilization, will that be the scale that we need that will drive down? Will that have the, the, downward pricing effect that we're looking for, or do you think it's too soon to tell? Well, I, I didn't mean for that to be a leading question at the well, end. Yeah, <laughs> I'll just kind of take that and work, work my way through it. So, uh, no, that's, that's, and that's, that's a great question too as well. And, and I think it's exciting that we're seeing this, right? The, these kinds of announcements coming out uh, where, where hydrogen is really being looked at as, uh, as a utility, uh, you know, fuel. So anything that creates demand, uh, you know, at, at scale is going to help with, with pricing. And especially when we're talking about scales uh, that are required to, to combust hydrogen. Uh, you know, a project that comes to mind is the, uh, you know, the Intermountain Power Project, uh, you know, in Utah. Uh, you know, Magnum Energy and uh, Mitsubishi Atashi Power Systems are, are working at a large scale uh, renewable hydrogen storage uh, project where hydrogen is going to be generated from electrolysis and stored in, the, in salt caverns. And of course, uh, the hydrogen will be used to, to provide power uh, as well, too. So when you're looking at projects like this and you're generating that volume of hydrogen that can go into a salt cavern, uh, and especially in, you know, in a place like, like Utah, uh, you know, we, we start to see the potential for the formation of uh, corridors or, or clusters where you can start to build out hydrogen supply stations and then start supporting uh, you know, transport that crosses state lines. So going back to the transport theme there as well, Chris, right? Uh, so, but this begin this becomes the beginning of a, of, a, of the infrastructure uh, that can spread out and sort of create that seed environment of, of uh, building out station corridors to supply trucks that will cross state lines at certain nodal uh, locations. And then, of course, as the the fleets are being able to service by not only say fueling infrastructure in, in California but other locations, that can start to generate some of the critical mass that's needed to build up other corridors and to get that kind of coverage. So. 
so initially, the, you know, the question was, was about the demand of hydrogen for a specific application. But I think there's also potential to take that hydrogen that's stored uh, and being uh, using that to supply other adjacent markets uh, as well, too. And again, to volume play, right, as well. So, uh, so anything that creates that that volume will, will help drive down the uh, you know that price, and uh, which is that, uh, you know a critical you know a critical step forward, right, and making that uh, making that happen. You know, and I think it's the uh, the fact that this could also play very well into the larger. Uh, ecosystem where it's not just trucks. I mean, that hydrogen can be uh, compressed, stored, and moved to support some of the other other industries that I've talked about, such as rail, marine uh, applications uh, as well. And um, I think your your other uh, question, uh, Andrew, about sort of you know other uh, other sectors and kind of getting getting into that. So so certainly we talked about long term energy storage uh, and the fact that hydrogen can be banned for a long period of of time is a real uh, important aspect and it's you have especially electrolytic hydrogen which is being produced at very high purity so you've got this, this beautiful fuel that, that can be used as a transportation fuel but other things like um you know like zero emission for uh prime power for, for data centers so if you look at data centers uh power demands from data centers are, are increasing as well and hydrogen uh you know can play a role here in uh, providing you know not only backup power for emergency applications but even the longer term uh, with the, the generation of hydrogen at scale, uh, supporting data centers. And this is something that, uh, you know, you've heard probably DOE talk about as well, too, uh, as, a, as another area, backup power, microgrids uh, type applications, uh, and really leveraging the fact that there's there's really no loss of, of energy when you, when you store hydrogen, right? So uh, in terms of the environmental benefits as well, too, uh, the hydrogen systems are largely uh, made of recyclable uh, materials. Uh, as well, so this this is this is going to uh, check some boxes in that space as well too. And uh, when when this technology comes together, not only in the generation side but also on the consumption side at scale, this is where we start to see the large demand, the large consumption of of hydrogen that will drive costs down. And it's not only about volume, uh, you know, it's also about the technical advancements too. And I'm sure you've heard this from from others that really it's about you know technical advancements and volume. Uh, to get cost down, and I can tell you from from experience, especially on the transport, the technology side of things, uh, as well. Um, during my you know my time at Hydrogenics uh, in the early years of the development of the technology, uh, you know we could see that uh, you know the, the the fuel cell tech. Uh, we're talking specifically about fuel cells. had actually reduced in cost about eighty five percent just through technical improvements with very little movement in, in volume initially. So this was actually reducing. Uh, you know, parts account, uh, you know, doing this in a way that improving system architecture, I mean, not not by removing supply scope, but I mean, to actually uh, reduce the overall uh, the, the need for certain balance of plant uh, components, uh, getting parts down from, say, 25 parts down to eight and then six. Uh, and then, of course, making sure that uh, the system is optimized. So seeing those reductions in, um, in cost due to technical advancement is one path. And when you look at volume pricing going forward, it's usually assuming state of the art, right? So there will be more technical developments in the future that will also help drive down those costs. So, uh, and you see this as well on electrolysis, right? So electrolyzer prices have been falling uh, significantly. If you just go back to uh, you know, the mid, uh, you know, the 2010, 2014, 2015, uh, to now, uh, you're seeing you know at least an excess of 50% reduction in, in costs and owing to the same kind of technical improvements as well. So uh, reducing the, uh, you know, improving the system architecture technology, uh, designing more power dense uh, systems that can be easily you know, replicated uh, and scaled up to multi uh, megawatt and again, further realized cost reductions. So, so these factors are, are at place. So when you look at the combination of technical improvements uh, and then volume, but volume around the improved technology, uh, couple that with the demand uh, for hydrogen at scale, not only for high utilization applications like uh, transit and, uh, and trucking as well, but uh, energy, grid support, uh, you know, fuel, all of these things will, will help drive uh, those, those costs down. And more importantly, because these are real applications and they do real work and real high utilization duty cycles, uh, this, this, this gives, again, if you're, if you're on the fueling side of the equation, uh, this gives those fueling providers the, uh, the, the commitment uh, for the, the takeoff, the demand for that fuel, to keep investing in that business because it's it's great that we have a lot of great government support here uh, in these different applications, you know, with the bands, with the funding opportunities. This is this is key. There's also a huge opportunity for private sector to play a, a role and invest in. And uh, you know, as we like to see in the industry, we like to see this investment 
uh, come in and continue and, uh, and drive those forward. And we're already starting to see uh, a lot of that happen, not only with the traditional uh, gas and, and uh, technology suppliers, but also companies in the renewable energy space that are operating, say, wind and solar assets. And some of these assets may already be coming off of PPA and you're looking for an opportunity to, to leverage uh, these assets, you know, enter hydrogen and electrolysis and a remote location where, you know, maybe land or future built out may be uh, certainly more cost effective than building close to a city core, but not so far that you can't uh, transport the hydrogen fuel accordingly. You're stealing our uh, our next episode titles. Right? <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're running. You're, you're stealing this. This is the next one. The next one. Maybe should come back. Maybe stuff. I should come back. And uh... the next one. Yeah, we've got, you're, you're nicking the next one. Um, you know, Patrick's got a whole episode lined up. For okay, jump it. Yeah, jump into it. <laughs> well, it's a great topic. I'll tell you, that's for sure. <laughs> it is a good topic. It's a very good topic. No, I mean, of course, me and Patrick's first uh, article on hydrogen together was on the off-grid applications for you know, hydrogen in the mining sector so yeah we're we're all on that um, but yeah you've got to get patrick's mining guys something to talk about <laughs> <laughs> excellent otherwise we're just mobility all right, um, very good look uh, rob I, I think we've been very greedy with your time already um and uh so i so really appreciate you coming on uh, andrew and patrick is there any questions for rob left or are we I feel horrible <laughs> imposing, but but Rob, I will say I will never forgive myself if I don't ask this question. At the very beginning of the of uh, the the interview, you mentioned that you guys were doing work with McLaren. Are are they what what's ha- what's happening there? I, I have to know if oh. I'm if I'm allowed to know. Well, it, it certainly may, it, it predates my time at Ricardo here, of course, but. Uh, uh, you know, a big part of Ricardo's uh, business, uh, being on the engine and propulsion side, we have a, a group called Performance Products, uh, where they focus on uh, niche uh, manufacturing. So uh, the work that we've been doing for McLaren has been around engine development, uh, designing you know, engines from a, from a clean sheet, and uh, taking that all the way through to uh, the power plant that they needed for their uh, performance car, and also uh, setting up and handling all the industrial engineering side of the uh, the production of those, those, those engines going forward. So... Uh, we have a group that uh, that's very good and focuses on specifically uh, engine component manufacturing, printing up to a low volume, and uh, and does this for other parts, other businesses as well too. So, yeah, motorsport is is also uh, you know part of the DNA uh, of the company. Very cool, very cool, awesome. Well, Rob, thank you, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. Andrew, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be on the show here. Thank you, Chris, and uh, thank you, Patrick. All right, guys. So uh, I got my McLaren question answered, which evidently had nothing to do with hydrogen. But hold, hey, hold, you know. hold up a second, Andrew. Andrew, hey, what, given what, your vast, what? vast expertise and time in the space, and also your in emerging cars? interest in supercars, what are your takeaways <laughs> on the McLaren? On the McLaren? On the McLaren talk? I'm, I'm going to let you let you let you freewheel on this one a little bit. On the whole, on the whole discussion, I think Andrew. The whole discussion. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there, guys. Uh, oof. Let's see. Okay, so he confirmed all of what we've, uh, you know, a lot of what we've talked about in the past uh, around the the vehicle drive system advantages to uh, to hydrogen fuel cells in the medium and heavy duty space and the commercial space. He confirmed all of Chris's talking points about the TFL pilot project, uh, which I now explains why Chris likes Rob so much. Although he is delightful, I like him now too. Get it? Totally get it. Um, let's see. I thought he, you know, I mean, I, I think we did ask him a bit of a leading question there at the end and sort of blended two together for time reasons. But, uh, you know, I thought his answer to, uh, I thought his answer to our blended question at the end about different uh, sector applications and the you know, subsequent uh, or follow-on scaling of demand uh, for hydrogen, in, you know, particularly given these major utility announcements and the downward uh, force that will exert on pricing in the sector, um, I think it all you know it's square. It was a bit of a leading question. We did tell you know I, I did ask him if he thinks it'll drive it down, but I mean I think that's pretty obvious, and I think he uh, I think he addressed it quite holistically. What did you think, Patrick? No, look, this is, uh, you know, number one, it's, 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 it's quite, it was quite cool to hear 
cross-modal kind of conversation around kind of public transportation systems, right, and the role. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the, the rail systems. We talked a lot about the London bus, but like, you know, and, and speaking a little bit to the to the last kind of point, you know, we've been talking about the dynamic kind of plays of the system of, of a hydrogen system or how they can play. And, and obviously this has been concentrated on mobility in a, in a, in a way, but, you know, it, it's just, it's nice to see the rubber meet the road, right? We talked about this a little bit in the intro. These are, these are real projects that we're talking about that have been deployed. It's very cool. Um, you know, where this kind of fits in and, and, you know, the conversation around California's 2035 kind of ban on internal combustion engines and the, the dynamic role uh, is ever more critical um, because, and, and Chris, maybe this speaks a little to your, your battery graphic that we've all seen because it got huge circulation that like it comes back down to the use case and the problem you're trying to fix. Like Rob, Rob was talking about, you know, if you can tolerate the, the recharge times or if you can tolerate the kind of almost quasi, um, you know, durational st- uh, stranding of the asset. I think that's, a, that's maybe a little bit of a loaded term, but, but you know, if you, can, if you can tolerate those, you get one, one selection point. And if you have um, pressure on the other side, you, you need to find something that gives you that flexibility, both in terms of the production and the stock and the flow kind of aspect of it, but also in terms of resiliency, in in terms of use or a callable feature. So yeah, like those are those are themes that run through, and I thought I thought Rob did a really really good job of kind of you know fleshing out those those points in a in a in a kind of tangible way across these kind of modal streams. So yeah, it was very cool. As to the as to McLaren supercars and whatnot, <laughs> I, 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 it's not my well, area of expertise. It has nothing Andrew, to do so. with. Apparently, had nothing. They're not making a play with Hyperion or anything like that. One thing I thought was interesting that Rob touched on that I think we've been hearing more and more about, uh, not just in interviews, but also on coverage of the sector, right, is uh, is uh, hydrogen applications in aviation, right? I mean, when we had Zero Avia on here, it wasn't all that long ago. I mean, maybe it was a few months, right, right. Um, you know, Chris termed it his, his Wild and Wonderful Ideas podcast, right? He just fell into that category. But really, I mean, you know, with Airbus, it, there's just a ton of, of uh, excitement around uh, hydrogen in the aviation sector that seems to be popping up everywhere these days. So, uh, and Rob touched on that. I thought that was really, you know, the, like I said, I think that's just really interesting that that keeps coming up. And it seems to be moving much more rapidly than, uh, than anyone would have predicted uh, just even a few months ago. Yeah. Well, this is it, right? Like, it's... <laughs> You know, at every moment in time, you know, we say, oh, this is the amazing or this would be kind of out there or this will be something that will come along, you know, X. And, you know, every time we've kind of said that, suddenly there's been a project or suddenly there's been, uh, you know, three companies doing that, that thing or offering that solution or addressing that problem or there's folks working on it. And, um, you know, the aviation space is obviously, you know, obviously we spoke with, with Zero Avia and, 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 they're doing kind of live live flights now, right? Which is incredible. And then was it what a couple of weeks ago? You had Airbus launch its uh, launch its uh, kind of notional or kind of a design um, for for three aviation or three uh, three aircraft, I should say. And you start to get the sense that this is real, right? And and you know, obviously, we're not talking full commercial flights just yet, but we're a damn way closer to it than probably we thought we were three months ago and you know i I personally i find that incredible i find it incredibly interesting that that that's the pace of innovation that we're seeing or the pace of kind of rollout that we're seeing and it bodes well for kind of some of our hardest to address kind of sectors in terms of an energy transition actually having a prospect of change so that's you know that's the optimistic end of it so yeah, very very cool, very interesting. It's gonna be it's gonna be an amazing amazing couple of uh, couple of months if it keeps on pace that the last couple of. Yeah, indeed. Well, I would I would I would uh, present a follow up question to you, Patrick. Um, you know, we like for instance, we're seeing you know let's use zero aviation. Well, also Airbus, right? <laughs> also a well known <laughs> also a well known participant in the aviation sector. Yeah, that seems to be moving relatively rapidly. You know is again relative to how fast uh, you know the aviation sector can move in something in something like this 
and relative to what our expectations were for the sector just a few months ago, are we seeing are we seeing infrastructure, you know, refueling infrastructure plays for the aviation sector keeping pace? Are you know the the plane designs? That's one thing, uh, tough enough as it is. But are we seeing the infrastructure, the refueling infrastructure uh, play keeping pace as well? Well, look, this is this is going to be the. You know, we hear the the phrase chicken and egg, right? Like chicken and egg problem, right? Um, you'll see the infrastructure roll out as there's emerging demand and, and the other way around. You'll see emerging demand as there's available infrastructure, right? Hypothetically, could we see infrastructure roll out in airports to fuel, um, you know, commercial aviation? Could we see that? Yes. Um, there's no reason to think that that is some sort of a critical bottleneck or, or, you know, there's no dynamic kind of at an airport site that would specifically say it would be more difficult to deploy there and generate fuel there than anywhere else. Uh, it comes back to things like, okay, what, what volume do they need? What, uh, you know, what size of electrolyzer will they need to install or what kind of renewable or, or energy resources will they need? Are they going to go, you know, blue, then green, are they going to, you know, how do you design that system becomes a part of the conversation. But, you know, at the end of the day, if, if somebody wants to set up a, you know, a Paris to London flight or, uh, you know, a, a London to New York flight, you know, the infrastructure will be developed to allow the planes to fly back and forth, right? And, and therefore, we're likely to see a route by route rollout as is the, the feature and, and kind, of, um, kind of design of the aviation sector, right? So I, I don't I don't see huge huge insurmountable hurdles. I think we're just at the stage where the you know the the, the aircraft are being developed, and once once you know those are maybe a bit more down the line, the deployment of the actual kind of you know fueling infrastructure shouldn't be something that would be particularly challenging. Chris, thoughts? Yeah, so I can comment on that, and then I think if, if I may, also I just wanted to maybe reflect a little bit on some of Rob's comments too. But but just picking up specifically on the um, aviation infrastructure piece, timelines are really complicated in any industry to get ahead around, and it sounds really cliche, but they are right. So for example, Zero Avia, who are the leading um, provider of commercial hydrogen aviation solutions at the moment, and who we've had on the show, um, you know, they have just uh, done their first flight as part of a pilot. But they still actually, you know, just because they've done that doesn't mean that it's gone through the sufficient number of flight hours to be approved by regulators to then be a commercial flight. Um, you know, and so there are sort of various, various stages that the infrastructure has to go through. Right. And one of the sort of uh, challenges in many senses with uh, infrastructure on the hydrogen side is the scalability question, because if I'm only ever putting in, you know, a pilot amount of storage or a pilot amount of hydrogen production, it's always going to be very, very expensive. And so therefore you don't get the best value. So that's that I think is the challenge on the infrastructure side. I mean, you know, it's very easy to put in a, you know, a one megawatt electrolyzer system into an airport and provide in theory 400 to 500 kilograms or, you know, approximately half a ton of hydrogen a day. It's more than sufficient for pilot scale. Does that make commercial sense to do? Probably not yet. Um, so really what you're trying to do is build up the demand around this infrastructure. So where I think the aviation bit is interesting from a green infrastructure perspective, green hydrogen infrastructure perspective, is how you build those other elements into it. So you, know, you do have ground handling vehicles that have a very quick turnaround, which maybe is too complicated and adds too much to peak load to be all battery electric. You have buses and you have coaches and you have taxis that are coming to and from the airport who potentially are also source of demand. So can you aggregate some of those things as the aviation infrastructure is coming in to get the scale you need to drive down costs? That's the kind of interesting element with green hydrogen infrastructure, because if I'm just meeting the infrastructure requirements of the next few phases of pilots and small flights, yeah, absolutely, the industry is more than capable of meeting that. But if I'm actually thinking about how do I commercially build a structure around it, it has to be a broader hub strategic engagement approach. So, and, I think, and I think that then is actually not a case of the infrastructure not being deliverable, it's a case of being able to get those stakeholders in a room and get them to buy in and accept that that's a logical and straightforward approach to net zero. So that, I mean, that'd be my response. And, and maybe you want to come back on me on that before I go into some of the comments on Rob's piece. So I, I have a quick question as a, as a follow on. I think, I think you're right. And, and you know, if we're, if we're talking about the problem of can infrastructure be deployed, the answer is yes, it can about making that 
ready and, and, and kind of ramping that up to a full commercial scale, absolutely, I, I, I think you're on the money around the, the kind of the challenges around that. One of the other aspects, though, that starts to feature here when we talk about that process is the role of folks like the industrial gases company. So we've, we've talked with, with a, couple of, a couple of folks from various companies that, that kind of fit that category now. And they, they would provide hypothetically or could provide, you know, top up solutions for that interim phase. You know, is that, is that a bridge or is that, um, you know, does that, does that allow a flexibility or, a, a, you know, kind of, I don't know, a, a staged approach to that infrastructure deployment so that we don't have this, this giant pilot to full commercial jump? Like, I, I just wonder your thoughts on that more than anything. It's an interesting one, right? I mean, there's plenty of companies, for example, in the SMR or Prolysis or, you know, uh, even companies like Syzygy who would say, well, actually, that's not, if you're talking about really small pilot scale, what you should be doing is you should be just performing natural gas on site using one of these small modular technologies. You know, that actually is the most intuitive way to get you kind of kickstarted, right? And there are, there are plenty of companies in the area that are doing that. So, depending on which particular set of interests you come at this from, there are different answers to the question of how do you get over the scaling up gap. I mean, I think our approach, at least in Proteum, how we're thinking about it is definitely, you know, the contingency to know that there is a BOC or an Air Products or an Air Liquide that if, you know, our first tier redundancy and second tier redundancy goes down, the client knows there is a third or fourth tier redundancy, which is to buy directly from them. Yeah, that, that definitely helps. Um, you know, I think it definitely is a question that comes up with a lot of hydrogen infrastructure projects at the moment, which is what is the backup source of hydrogen if the main source goes down? Um, you know, and actually, there are already some comments around a number of projects that have been delayed. Green hydrogen projects have been delayed in, the, in Europe and in the UK, uh, where actually, you know, because of the delay, people have had to buy green, uh, grey or brown hydrogen as an interim until the green project's built. So it's all very valid to raise these things, but um, I, I don't think it, it automatically means that you start with big gas companies just because they're there. I think there are other ways of doing it. Um, yeah, and also being blunt about it, this is this is exactly the role for government. You know, if you think about what government's real value add is in energy innovation, it's this value of death. It's, you know, we've gone through the labs, we've gone through testing, we've built a first working prototype, and now we need to get the number of hours up, and we need to get the you know, comfort and familiarity with the system up to the point where we can commercially deploy it. So for things like, you know, a hydrogen refueling and uh, production and storage facility for aviation, you know, these are exactly the sorts of things the government should be getting involved in. Um, and, you know, in some senses, just giving it to a BOC or in our products doesn't really encourage innovation in these areas in the same way um, and potentially misses the better longer term commercial angles. So I, I think that's how I respond to that. Um, I wanted to come to Rob's, some of Rob's feedback because I thought it was important to just go over it. I mean, Rob's a great speaker. I remember we had him come in and talk at the World Bank's Energy uh, Day when I was uh, still working there, and, and he did a really, really good job on the panel there. And I know a lot of colleagues at the World Bank afterwards came and spoke to him, and it made a huge difference to a lot of people's thinking about it. Um, and I think it's because of that track record. You know, I think we keep explaining that this isn't a new sector, but you know, when you actually meet someone who's been working in the sector for 20 years, he's actually got track record of all these really interesting projects and can talk knowledgeably about what has improved, what has changed, where the, you know, major um, tweaks have come from is so important. You know, it, we talked to quite a lot about the buses for London, but I thought it was fascinating to have him come in and talk about how, you know, they thought about the balance around supercapacitors and how they, you know, were able to incorporate most, incorporate motorcycle batteries alongside supercapacitors, um, you know, and the fuel cell combination to make sure that they could meet that sort of startup time and that they weren't running down the capacitors. I thought it was really interesting talking about how quickly they had to be able to turn the vehicle around. You know, I remember in discussions with him before, he was saying they were so nervous um, about this idea of failure of the vehicle that they originally scoped three full-time kind of engineers to be on standby in case something went wrong with the fuel cell buses and in the end nothing really went wrong and so as a result they sort of went from three to two to one to sort of half of one person on standby um, and, and I think that's just really important for people you know the fact that the, a decade people on a conventional bus route were probably not even aware is, is just so powerful um, 
And I think for all the reasons that he then spoke about the value of hydrogen as a mobility solution on the heavier mid-sized application range, uh, I just think there is very little doubt in my mind that it's going to be part of the package. Uh, I think the knowledge that you can see from um, policymakers in California saying, you know, we now feel that there's a robust enough body of evidence that we can do zero emission uh, commercial vehicles. And that's why they've pushed on really aggressive decarbonization policy shows that this is part of the direction of travel. Um, and I think it's it's hopefully only a matter of time for you know, what California has done starts to then feed through to the rest of the US market. And I think the US market really catches on in a way that in some senses may be unfairly the Chinese market hasn't mobilized investors, even though they've deployed you know, several thousand fuel cell trucks and, and buses. I think if the Americans do catch on, it will really ignite and take you know, a lot of skeptics sort of away from, is this ever going to make sense to what is the ultimate split between pure battery electric and fuel cell electric in the future? And that then becomes a much more interesting discussion. I like that. And since we've gone wildly over time today, guys, we're, going, we're going to end it there. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge thank you to Rob Delcor, Assistant VP for Advanced Technology Strategy at Ricardo PLC for joining us on the show today. Thank you as always to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. So if you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you will join us again next time on Everything About Hydrogen when we will be speaking with Dr. Daniel Teichmann of Hydrogenius. Daniel is the founder of Hydrogenius, a Germany-based producer of LOHC systems aimed at addressing some of the more nagging challenges in the distribution and storage of hydrogen. So that will be a super interesting conversation. Till then, all the best from the team here at Everything About Hydrogen.